want to begin this evening by just saying thank you all for coming back tonight. Sometimes when it's a harder message on a Sunday, I'm wondering, all right, who's going to make it back on a Sunday evening? And uh, anyway, grateful to see you all. And I know, I know that uh, especially in the fall of the year when you got some football that can easily allow you to drift off and get a good afternoon nap, it might be a little harder to get back up and to uh, come to church on a Sunday evening. But Lord willing, it is worth it to be together with the body of Christ, to be in the Word, to have an opportunity to continue to grow together. So this evening, I want to begin with a quote that I shared this last week. Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. That quote is just as relevant today as what it was when it was written back in 1905. Now, last week, I gave two different historical accounts that have direct bearing upon us today. The first account was from the Southern Baptist Convention back in 1961, and there was a battle for the inerrancy of Scripture that was taking place at that time. The second account was from the Jerusalem Council around A.D. 50, and in that, the fight was for the gospel of grace. In both situations, there were church leaders who came together to address major threats that were coming against their church, and as well as believers that they were trying to serve. In both cases, people did not learn from the lessons of the past, and those same issues have crept up now thousands of times since then. As we will continue this evening in our verse-by-verse study of the letter to the Galatians, we're brought back to that fateful meeting that took place at the Jerusalem Council. At that time, as I said, the attack was against the gospel of grace. And that is an attack that persists to this very day. If you happen to do what I do, a lot of times people will move to different cities and they will contact me and they will say, Paul, can you recommend a Bible-teaching, Bible-based, gospel-centered, Christ-exalting church in this particular city? And one of the things I've tried to do over the years is to train people on how do you look for that church when you show up in that city? But sometimes it's a person who maybe they've been a believer for six months or nine months and they don't necessarily know what to look for. So I find myself many times spending a lot of time on different church websites of different cities trying to find out what do these people believe. And all I can tell you is the more time you spend on church websites, the more you will find that the gospel of grace is under attack. The more time you read about denominational positioning. The gospel of grace is under attack. The more messages you happen to watch on television, the more you will see the gospel of grace is still under attack. It is an attack that has been going on now for 2,000 years. A part of that attack is religious rebellion. Some people simply refuse to believe that their good works are not enough to make them right with God. Part of the attack is financial incentive. People have discovered that they can make a lot of money by tacking Jesus' name to the end of their prosperity message. A part of the attack is controlling people. That is, it's easier to get people to do what you want them to do if you link their salvation to their actions. And a part of the attack is also biblical ignorance. Sometimes people simply have not heard the gospel of grace. But regardless of what the motivation is, our Our response always needs to be the same. We have to be champions for the gospel of grace. We have to know what it is, and we have to be able to call it out when it's not happening. So my prayer from last week is my prayer for this week, and that is I'm praying 
that we learn from history. I'm praying that in this church, people are so passionate and so excited and so informed about the gospel of grace that we will take the fight when necessary in order to preserve this beautiful doctrine for the next generation. I pray that we would be able to recognize it so that we can very quickly address it and not address it in a mean spirit, but address things in love as well as in grace. Now, I do not want to sound like an alarmist. Uh, I try my best not to give the impression that the sky is falling, but I will tell you this. There are cataclysmic shifts in the theological foundations of evangelical churches today. These same things that we're discussing in our verse-by-verse study in the book of Galatians, these same issues are now being turned upside down in churches. And if there's not someone who is sounding the alarm, if believers don't know the truth, if they're not in the word, they will find themselves sometimes being asleep at the wheel and they turn around and look back and five years ago is when the battle was being fought but we were just too busy with other things. We have to be able to recognize and be a champion for the gospel of grace. So if you're not already there, I invite you to go with me in your Bibles this evening to the book of Galatians. We're going to be, once again, in this section, chapter 2. It's going to be in verses 1 through 10. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm finishing the second half of the message that I began this last week on the fight for freedom. Now, I want you to just hold your place in the text. I'm not going to read it in advance, but I will address the certain parts as we're working our way through. But let's take a moment to go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we move forward in your word this evening, may your spirit guide us into truth. God, may we be open and receptive to your word, and may it change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's your very quick recap, maybe a minute and a half, two minutes in order to make sure everybody is up to speed. That is, around AD 50, church leaders met in Jerusalem to address a major threat that was coming against the churches at that time. A pharisaical group referred to as the Judaizers had infiltrated the church, and they were teaching that salvation does not come by faith in Jesus alone, but rather it is faith in Jesus plus becoming a Jew, plus adherence to the Mosaic law. There were three parts that they were espousing as essential for a person's salvation. Now, because of the fact this particular group was incredibly convincing to some, it led to mass confusion within the early church. As a result of that, there's a group who come together at this Jerusalem council in order to settle this issue once and for all. They're asking two questions. Does salvation come by grace through faith, Or does salvation come by the law? That's question number one. Second question is, is the gospel that is being proclaimed by the Apostle Paul the same as the gospel that was being proclaimed by the other apostles? These Judaizers had followed after the Apostle Paul's ministry. They stirred up people everywhere he went. And they said, he is a fake apostle. He is preaching a different gospel. So this particular group, they meet in order to address that, to put it to bed once and for all. Now, after listening to the evidence, after listening to a number of those key leaders, the consensus of the Jerusalem Council was absolutely clear. Not only did they agree that salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus alone, that is for the Jew and the Gentile alike, 
But at the same time, they agreed that the Apostle Paul was preaching the same gospel as the other apostles. In fact, they agreed to it so much that they sent Paul and Barnabas back out on their missionary journeys and sent two more people with them to make sure they were able to get the gospel out to as many people as possible. So when we get to the letter to the Galatians, Paul is writing to a group that had already been influenced by the Judaizers. They had already bought into the lies. They had already abandoned the gospel of grace and they're moving back into bondage. And he's trying to stop them in their tracks and say, before you go too far, before you go any further away, let me steer you back onto the gospel of grace to make sure that you're able to thrive as followers of Christ. So what did he teach? What did he share? What did he do in an effort to fight for freedom? Last week, we covered one part. That is, he made it clear the gospel is not of private interpretation. I gave this one particular statement multiple times. If the gospel we preach is not the gospel Christ gave, it is not the gospel at all. The gospel is the good news of God's design, sin's intrusion, and Christ's solution for human flourishing. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is of God. It is designed by God. It is shared by God. The gospel is not a private interpretation. What that means is you cannot add to it and it still be the gospel. You can't modify it and it still be the gospel. You cannot say, well, this is how you interpret the gospel, but this is how I interpret the gospel and it still be the gospel. If the gospel we preach is not the gospel Christ gave, it is not the gospel at all. That's where we ended this last week. What else did Paul teach or share or do in an effort to fight for our freedom? This is the new information. He made it clear that the gospel of grace is under attack by those who want to impose the bondage of the law. Now, this is found in verses 3 through 5. Let's read that section. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Now, it is a stroke of genius on the Apostle Paul's part to take Titus with him to the Jerusalem council. Titus was a Gentile believer who came to faith in Christ under Paul's teaching. He was mentored through Paul's ministry. He was established as an overseer of churches in Crete as a direct result of Paul's influence. He was strong in his faith. So as this council is meeting in order to ask the question, is a person saved by grace through faith in Jesus or are they saved by adherence to the Mosaic law, the Apostle Paul could point to Titus and say, I'd like to give you exhibit A. This is a Gentile follower of Christ. And at the same time, he also says this is a guy, interesting, might be, seem like a very personal piece of trivia, but it also says, there's a guy who's uncircumcised. <laughs> now, when I say that's a personal piece of trivia, some of you know what I'm talking about. But here's the reason why he was bringing that up. Because submitting to circumcision meant accepting and obeying the whole Mosaic law. 
So with Titus in the room, the Apostle Paul could say, here's a guy who is a follower of Jesus Christ. He is a leader within the church. He is, he is moving the gospel forward, and he is not living under bondage to the Mosaic law. Now, this is just a thought. Sometimes I read the Bible, and there's things that just stand out to me. In my part, when I read this, and so I'm thinking to myself, I wonder how Titus felt <laughs> about being an example in that way. I mean, if you thought about that for just a moment right there, like, that's a pretty personal thing. I can, in my mind, I can see how the conversation goes. So you're a Gentile follower of Christ. Yes, I am. And you're a leader in the church as best I know how. And you've not been circumcised? No. Are you sure? I'm, I'm pretty positive. <laughs> Is there anything else we can talk about right now? I mean, like, how about those Jerusalem Dodgers right there? Like, anything. I mean, just sometimes I look at this and I'm just like, man, that, that happened. That happened. You can tell that's a part of the pastoral ministry of the Apostle of Paul. Sometimes you might not want to share every detail of your life with your pastor. Amen? Amen. All right. So in verse number four, the Apostle Paul, he called the Judaizers false brethren. Uh, it's also referred to or translated as pseudo-Christians. Now, some of these Judaizers were professing Jewish believers who had developed this hybrid faith that was neither traditional Judaism because it accepted allegiance to Christ, but at the same time, it was also not apostolic Christianity because it required circumcision and obedience to the Mosaic law as a part of salvation. It was a hybrid faith that they had tried to create. Now, there's another group of these Judaizers who were referred to as Jewish zealots. That is, they intentionally inserted themselves into these communities of believers in order to counteract what they considered to be a heretical sect of Judaism. Now, it seems as though he's referring to the second group right here. That is, he talks about the fact that they came in to spy out our liberty that we have in Christ. Now, if you're a true follower of Christ, you don't have to sneak into anything. This group, they, they snuck in in order to spy out the liberty. It, it seems as though he is addressing that particular group. Their purpose was to undermine the liberty and to lead people back into the Mosaic law. Let's pause here for just a moment. If you have lived under legalism, and you have been set free by the gospel of grace, you can sniff out legalism a mile away. When you've experienced freedom in Christ, and then somebody's like, no, we're going to put you back in bondage, you're like, no. No, that's not going to happen. There's something that is unbelievably freeing about the gospel of grace. There's something that you have to teach yourself and share with yourself over and over as a follower of Jesus Christ. There's some truths that you learn, they sink in, and it's already set. There's other truths that you have to rehash and you got to chew over again and again. Here's this one truth that I have to chew on constantly. My acceptance is not based on my performance. My acceptance is not based on my performance. 
And here's the other side of that. I desire holiness not to keep my standing with God, but rather to express my worship of God. It's not that I I want freedom to just go out and do anything I desire to do. It should be that a believer desires to walk in holiness. But your desire for holiness is not, I have to do this, otherwise I lose my acceptance. Otherwise God is mad with me. Otherwise God is upset. Otherwise I lose my positioning. No, at the cross that was settled. And if our good works were not enough to make us right with God, I guarantee you they're not going to be enough to keep us right with God. That's why the gospel is so powerful. He did for us what we could never do. So you have to constantly remind yourself, my acceptance is not based on my performance. I desire holiness not to keep my standing with God, but to express my worship to God. The concept of law-based living is foreign to the freedom cries that you find in the New Testament. You just write down a couple of these references off to the side. Romans chapter 7, verse 6, it tells believers that they have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Because, 2 Corinthians 3, 17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is, there it is, freedom, liberty. It also says, John 8, 36, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Now, you're either free or you're not. Are, are you, question, are you free? Some of you, marginally free. <laughs> you're like, I'm sure, let's go with that. <laughs> Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Listen, we know that Christian freedom is not a license to sin. We have been freed from sin. Here it is, becoming slaves of righteousness. Romans chapter 6, verse 18. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. What happens, and this is just, it's a maturity thing. It's a maturity thing. What happens a lot of times is when people hear the gospel of grace, they're like, man, I'm going to do whatever I want to do now. I'm free. No, just keep walking with Jesus longer on that. You'll find that, yes, you're free in Christ. But when you're getting to know him, you don't want to do anything that would disrupt the intimacy that you have with him. There are some things you might be able to do that you're saying, you know what? I'm not going to do that because I don't want to disrupt this. This is the greater value. This is what I'm excited about in my life. We know that following Christ brings incredible freedom. We're freed from sin, but at the same time, the Bible says we've been enslaved to righteousness. So in verse number 5, we find that the Apostle Paul and the other apostles, they did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. That word remain, it, it emphasizes this permanent state. Throughout the Apostle Paul's letters, we see that he has made practical concessions to accommodate weaker believers. Now, let's kind of give a couple of those. That is, there was that one situation about not eating meat that had been offered to idols. 
You also find that there is a refraining in liberty so as not to become a stumbling block for those weaker believers, those younger believers, those who are not as far along in their faith. But listen to this. He never yielded an inch of truth to accommodate false Christians. Now, we need to stop right here for just a moment. I am all about church growth. I'm all about more people coming to faith in Christ. In fact, this morning I was praying as we were getting ready for the first service, and a thought hit my mind this morning. I, I just, I'm going to throw it out to you and see if it hits you the same way. Am I grieving over the empty chairs that are in this room on a Sunday? Because it's not that the people who are here are the only ones who need to hear the gospel. We got a community of people, many of which are not connected into any type of community of faith. When was the last time I was grieving over those things? I am praying that God would continue to bring people in. I'm praying that the gospel reaches families and transforms lives. I'm praying that we will begin to see in the next several months, in the next several years, so many people that are starting to come that God begins to do a work and we're having to talk multiple services. We're having to talk how it is that we engage that many people. And I'm praying when that time comes, we are ready for what it looks like to work for a kingdom cause. That kingdom cause is not just let's get more people in the room. That is a shallow goal if that's the end in and of itself. But if you're talking about each of those seats being filled with people that Christ came to redeem, each of those lives being created personally by our God, each of those individuals is now here and they got an opportunity to reflect the glory of God and we have an opportunity to get the good news in and to help families and to help young people so that they can many times escape so many of the snares of the enemy. If we don't get excited about working for those things, I don't know what we're going to get excited about. So I'm all about church growth. I'm all about seeing seats filled. I'm all about more people coming to faith in Christ. I fully understand the meaning and the purpose behind Christians sharing truth so that it is practically applied to where believers and many times even unbelievers are at. We've had many stories of people who they came to our church out in Las Vegas and they had actually told their friends who were in the church, please don't invite me to church. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to have anything to do with that. But then they kept going through problems, and their friends kept saying, well, my pastor just addressed that this last week. And then the next week, it would come again. Well, my pastor just addressed that last week. And what we found is those same individuals who basically said, don't invite me to church, came back and said, is it okay if I come because it seems like your pastor keeps addressing everything I'm walking through? You know what just happened then? The word of God that was changing one life was now being made applicable even to the life of somebody who was not a believer. I'm all about the church being filled. But listen carefully. We also have to be unbelievably careful because as churches have leaned into relevance, we've often leaned away from truth. We don't want to offend people with harder truths, so we hold back portions of God's word. 
We don't want to seem as though we are culturally insensitive. We don't want to seem as though we are not in touch with reality. So what happens is we pull back and we hide some of those things. It's almost like let's just share nothing but good stuff to get them in and hope they get saved. Here's just a little truth God's taught us over the years. What it takes to catch them is what it takes to keep them. If you caught them with a little bit of truth, they're going to want you to continue to give them just a little bit of truth. But when the gospel transforms a person's life, they can handle every single truth that is right here. Let the gospel do the work in a person's heart. Here's the next one. What else did Paul teach or share or do in an effort to fight for freedom? That is, he made it clear that the gospel is entrusted and directed and empowered by God. Man, what a freeing concept. The gospel is entrusted, directed, and empowered by God. Verses 6 through 8. It says, but from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. Oh, we want to hang out here for just a moment. This will free you up. Here it is. Scripture will teach you salvation is completely in the hands of God. Completely in the hands of God. This is another example of that being lived out. That is the gospel, which is at the heart of salvation. It is entrusted, it is directed, it is empowered by God. Now notice how the Apostle Paul has just a hair bit of sarcasm. I can, I can relate to that. I got a little sarcasm in me. But he refers to the other apostles as those who are of, quote, high reputation. Did you know the reason he did that is because one of the favorite things the Judaizers were slinging at him is that they said he was not of high reputation. He makes reference to that in verse 2, verse 6, as well as in verse 9. So he basically is saying, hey, listen, I'm not disrespecting those guys, but the Judaizers were using the same language to make a point. So the reputation of the messenger does not validate the message. That's the point that he's trying to make here. God is the ultimate authority when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to salvation. Now, if you get to the very end of verse number four, he tells the Galatian churches that the other apostles contributed nothing to me. Again, he's not trying to be proud. He's not being arrogant. He's not being boastful. But rather, he's stating a fact to which he has now been defending over the last chapter. And that is, the gospel had been personally entrusted to him the same way it had been personally entrusted to the other apostles. All that Paul was, all that Paul knew, all that Paul had accomplished was entirely by the grace of God. Chapter 2, verse 9. He also knew that his former years of persecuting believers should make him the least of these apostles. 1 Corinthians 15, 9. But God's grace made it so that he was equal to the other guys, both as a Christian as well as as an apostle. 
So when you get into 2 Corinthians 11.5, he affirmed, I consider myself not in the least inferior to these most eminent apostles. That's what grace will do for you. I believe this is in your notes. Grace humbles us where we need to be humbled and gives us confidence in a way that honors God. It, grace is something that humbles us where we need to be humbled and gives us confidence in a way that honors God. Paul was not worthy of the gospel that God gave, but Paul was unbelievably grateful for the gospel that God gave. Here's what we find in verse number 7. Paul had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. Now, let this thought sit in your mind for just a moment. And again, don't, don't build up barriers before I finish the statement here. There is no passage in the New Testament that tells us that Peter or Paul chose Jesus. The opposite is true. You can go to both stories where Jesus chose them. And if you're thinking, well, that was specifically for them, but listen to what Jesus says over in John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. There's also not a passage that tells us that Peter or Paul got a chance to pick whom they wanted to take the gospel to. They both were directed by God in their steps. That is, God entrusted the gospel to them. God directed them with the gospel as to where they were supposed to take it. And according to this text, it also tells us that God empowered them with the gospel. The same spirit who effectually worked in Peter is the same spirit who is effectually working in Paul. The Holy Spirit energized and empowered the work. Here's the final piece I want you to see. Paul made it clear that the gospel should unify God's people. This is found in verses 9 and 10. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing which I was eager to do. Pause here for a moment. I had a flashback to when I was growing up in church in Savannah. My pastor, during the greeting time, would always say, you all take a moment and give people around you the right hand of Christian fellowship. I was always like, what exactly is the right hand of Christian fellowship? Apparently, this is the text he was pulling that from. There's those times when all of a sudden you're like, ah, that's what he was talking about back then. So the gospel should be one that unifies the church. The reason? It's simple. That is, the gospel is central to every single believer. Doctrines like the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the death and bodily resurrection of Jesus, those are essential truths of the faith. Now, we can differ on spiritual gifts, and we can differ on church government, and we can differ on worship style, and we can differ on end-time ideas, but we can't differ when it comes to the gospel. The gospel is central to every single believer. But for the early church, they were still being confused about the gospel. We get 2,000 years of history 
where these, these arguments have been worked out, these issues have been worked out. We get a chance from the, this point, the vantage point of history, to look back and say, how in the world could they have ever been confused about that? Well, quite honestly, people are still confused about it today. But it's not because we lack the information. It's there. It's available. But after the Jerusalem Council, the Apostle Paul showed how the leadership had now been united around the gospel. He refers, again, to the reputation of three individuals. That is James and Cephas, also known as Peter, and John. He calls them those who were reputed to be pillars. Uh, That particular phrase is one that was used in Judaism of the great teachers. He's basically saying the great teachers agree in this area of the gospel. We're all on the same page. We're all unified about what this gospel message really is. Not only were they in doctrinal harmony together with the apostles, but they were in relational harmony. Paul says that they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. At that time and in that culture, to clasp the right hand of a person was to make a solemn vow of friendship and to symbolize partnership. So he's saying, we're together in this. We're united in this. We not only believe the same thing, we are relationally connected together. They had different fields of service for sure. That is, Paul and Barnabas ministered primarily to Gentiles. Peter and James and John ministered primarily to Jews. The scope of where they were ministering was different, but it was the same Lord. It was the same gospel. It was the same spirits. They're a part of the same body. Here's here's one of the weird things about church life. You all might have a whole list longer than what I do. I only got one weird thing I'm going to share right now, but Here's one of those weird things about church life. When people are being saved at another church, sometimes we get the feeling like we're in competition with them. Like that's somehow a threat. I don't understand that based on reading the New Testament. It seems as though when somebody gets saved, regardless of which church they're attending, that is a win for the kingdom of God and the family of God. It should be that we celebrate it. If somebody's getting saved, groups are being saved, say at First Albany, or they're being saved at Gileanville, or they're being saved at another church in the community, we need to say, praise the Lord for what God is doing. We we need to encourage each other in this. In this particular area, they were serving in different places, but they were united together around the same gospel, the same spirits. Now, this unity also spread in some very practical ways. That is, the only request that was made of Paul and Barnabas was that they would remember the poor. And Paul said that was something they were absolutely eager to do. But this is one of the beautiful ways that that God weaves his family together. Here's what I mean by that. There were major financial stresses within the Jerusalem church that had been going on for years. In fact, there was a famine that's actually mentioned in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, in which the Apostle Paul was called to bring relief for that particular famine. And the Jerusalem church was one, they were financially strapped because they kept seeing people come in. People would come to faith in Christ, but they could not return back to their their same family. They couldn't return to their jobs. Many times they lost their households. So as a result of that, oftentimes they were strapped financially. 
So you find that this early Jerusalem church was in a desperate state financially. But here's what happened. The Apostle Paul was continuously encouraging people to give out of generosity to the needs of other believers. So when he says this is something he was eager to do, this was something. This wasn't his first rodeo on this. This is something that he had also been echoing in Acts 11 and Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, as well as in chapter 9. So in Romans chapter 15, verse 27, listen to what Paul says. Then Gentiles are indebted to Jewish saints, for if the Gentiles have shared in, the, in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Now here's what he's saying. The gospel came first to the Jewish believers, and it has now come to us. You're, you're indebted because of what has now come to you. But notice how things now come full circle. The gospel came first through the Jews and was extended to the Gentiles. In this situation, financial resources came to the Gentiles and was now to be extended back to the Jewish believers. You see the beautiful way that the gospel brings it all the way back around? He's saying, you're both in this together. It was a unifying part of the early church. Now, how do you apply a message like this? Study the gospel. Study the gospel. Study the gospel. Do not yield for a moment if there are truths that are contrary to the gospel message. When I say study the gospel, I'm, I'm going to give you several very practical ways that you can do this. One of those, check out this website. This is thegospel.com. Many people right here at Sherwood have gone through a number of those resources. There's some of the discipleship material that comes from that particular website. But there's also messages on gospel understanding, gospel living, how it is that you share the gospel, all of these different practical pieces. For me personally, the gospel is one of those topics that I want to constantly be reading and studying. I, I'm, I'm always reading different things. I, I've tried to narrow things down to about four topics that I want to be unbelievably proficient in. You can't know everything about everything. It's nice to know a little bit about a lot of things. That's great. But I want to be unbelievably proficient in about four things. One of those is the gospel. One of those is on teaching. I want to learn how to be a better communicator. Another one of those is I'm constantly asking God to help me understand theology. Another one is I want to constantly be growing in leadership. Those are topics every single year. I'm going to get at least four, maybe six, seven books on each of those topics every single year in order to keep studying. Now, here's what I'll tell you about studying for the gospel. A lot of times you got to go back to the old books, and a lot of times you're going to read those same books over and over again. That tells you a little bit about where the gospel has been placed in the contemporary church. It's not like you can just go to a bookshelf at your Christian bookstore and find like 50 brand new books that are teaching on the gospel. Now, there is a resurgence in some areas, but that, the number of resources is small. That's a part also of why we have our book of the month right now. Hey, you like that segue? Do you, you like that segue right there, Jim? There we go. Now I get a chance to share about the book of the month here. Okay, so right now we're talking about victory in Christ. That is our book of the month. That is a gospel-saturated book. 
We just came out of the indwelling life of Christ, gospel all the way through that particular book. There was one statement in the indwelling life of Christ that has now stuck with me for over 10 years. Here's what he said. He said, the commands of God are written to the life of Christ in you. Let that one just marinate in your spirit for a while. The commands of God are written to the life of Christ in you. Do you know why that freed me up? Because I kept reading the commands of God, and I would say, starting tomorrow, I'm going to do that. Starting to, I'm going to get it right. Starting tomorrow, I, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to read longer. I'm going to do, and here the thing is, I would have really good success for like 30 minutes. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, I, I was failing again. And I kept feeling like, God, why can't I do what your word's telling me to do? It's because the commands of God are written to the life of Christ in you. See, here's what my part is now. I come before God and I say, God, I can't, but you can through me. God, that's what I desire, but if I try to do it in my strength, I'm going to fail every time. I submit myself to you and I ask that you live this truth through me. And what happens is God gets the victory and we get an opportunity to have further dependence upon him. Keep reading the books. We're emphasizing the gospel over and over. And here's the last piece on applying it. Share the gospel with friends and family. Do you know the more you share something, the more excited you get about it? The more you share it, the more comfortable you become talking about it? Share the gospel with others. Share what God is doing in your life. It'll be amazing how God uses it in order to transform lives around you. All right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close out for this evening, God, we pray that you would help us to be gospel proficient. God, help us to not only know the truths of your word, but Lord, may we live the truths of your word. I pray that our hearts and our minds are, are almost being pulled back to you constantly like, like a magnet. That whenever we go too far away, God, it's, it's like we're, we're pulled back instantly. Lord, I pray that as we continue to study the truths that are found in the book of Galatians, that, God, you would set people free, that you would give us the ability to rightly discern where Christian liberty is sometimes giving way to personal fleshly desires. And at the same time, God, help us to see where sometimes our desire in order to do things right, might be moving us right back into legalism. God, help us to find that balance. Apart from you, it's not going to happen. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You all have a wonderful evening. Lord willing, we'll see you this next week.